Thanks for listening and sharing our body politic. As you know, we're only a few months into the show and we are still shaping it with lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcasts on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. This week, we're talking about voting rights, racism, and public policy, and one woman's battle with COVID-19. Heather McGee spent years as an economic policy wonk and was president of Demos from 2014 to 2018, transforming it into a think tank that describes its work as race forward. She just published her book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. In it, she set out to analyze why white Americans believe in a zero-sum racial competition. That's the idea that progress for people of color comes at the expense of white people. And she uses social science research to show that this belief harms everyone. Heather, it's great to have you on Our Body Politic. It's so great to be with you. Tell us about the time that you write about in the book where you're 25 and you have a sort of, you know, moment where the race class narrative clicks in for you. So I spent nearly 20 years helping to build and then being president of for four years, a progressive economic think tank called Demos. And I was just a young economic policy staffer and I was working on the issue of debt, consumer debt, household debt student loans, credit cards, uh, mortgages. And I was in the Russell Senate office building, one of my first lobbying visits down there. We were trying to bring our economic research to policymakers to show them that it was going to be a very bad idea to change the bankruptcy laws as the credit card companies wanted to make it harder for people who had lost everything to get a fresh start and get back on their feet. And we felt like we kind of had, we had the math, right? We we could make the point um, that this was just a really bad economic policy decision, that it wasn't personal irresponsibility that was driving bankruptcy. It was these structural issues in our economy and people just having to borrow to make ends meet. And so we we came there with our numbers and I was wearing pantyhose. You have to wear pantyhose in D.C. <laughs> you, did, you did at the time. And um, they kept slipping off. And I remember I went mm. down to fix my shoe. And I was close to the bottom of a door that I could hear um, a voice. And it really sounded like it was the senator. It was a Senate office building. It sounded like it was the senator, the way the other people were talking to him. And he said, you know, these, these deadbeats, they, they um, you know, they're having these babies by multiple mamas and they are, um, you know, using the government to avoid their personal responsibility through bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, he didn't say anything about race. He didn't say these black men. He didn't say these brown men. But it made my heart rate speed up, right? And the hair stick up on the back of my neck. And I had this moment where I felt like, how did I spend all this time in this, you know, predominantly white world of economic think tanks and and economic research and forget one of the first lessons I ever learned as a Black person in America, that the majority of white people have, you know, pretty negative views about uh, our worth in this society and that that more than anything, 
helps explain why the majority of white people support a political party and and ideology that is bankrupting the country, um, that is, you know, leading to us being unable to handle the pandemic. All of these dysfunctions that so many of us are scratching our heads about. Why is it that America can't seem to get its act together? Why can we not, as I say in the first line of the book, why does it seem we can't seem to have nice things? And of course, I mean... I loved that you started with that. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, it's true, right? Don't you feel like, what is going on? Why are we so seemingly unable to just get our acts together, to do some of the basic things that a well that a high-functioning society should be able to do. Um, and, and on this journey that I took the right to some of us, it, it became clearer and clearer to me with every step that racism is the common denominator in our most vexing public problems. I want to go into some of that work you did talking to people um, and, and also, of course, continuing your analysis. So I want to circle back to how white people operate in the American framework. But let's talk a little bit about Janice and Isaiah Tomlin. Mm. Who are they? Why did you talk to them? What did you learn from them? I'm so glad that you're talking about this because I've done a number of interviews and so few people want to talk about the financial crisis chapter in my book. (laughs) I wonder Mm. why. So the first issue, as I said, that I really cut my teeth on in policy was the issue of debt. And that gave me a front row seat to the early phases of what would become the great financial crash and great recession. Um, I, for the book, talked to a couple named Janice and Isaiah Tomlin, who were a really emblematic Black homeowning couple um, who were targeted by completely unscrupulous mortgage brokers who had a corrupt kickback deal with one lender Mm. And they sold the Tomlins a refinance loan on their existing mortgage that they had never missed a payment on that was had an astronomical double-digit interest rate and all of these hidden fees. And it was just really emblematic of what happened really in the late 1990s and early 2000s. There were these deregulated lenders who were testing out What can we get away with? How much can Mm. we charge? How many tricks and traps can we bury in these mortgages? Who's going to stop us if we start first in the communities that are the least protected and the least respected, um, Black and brown communities? And it was so important for me to tell this story because during the crisis, you had this narrative that it was actually government being too soft, basically, Mm -hmm. too encouraging, too coddling of these minority home buyers who, you know, were were trying to reach for houses that they shouldn't have been able to afford. When the facts are, the majority of these loans, these subprime loans, were not going to get people into houses that they were stretching for. They were going to people who already had houses. They were refinancing and stripping equity out of existing homeowners. And that's how you end up with a story that to me is so emblematic of American systemic racism today. Obviously, Black folks get targeted and hurt first and worse. The Black homeownership rate still has not recovered. It is back to what it was before the Fair Housing Act. It is a crime. It is a tragedy of epic proportions. And also, whose life was not touched by the Great Recession? You had 8 million jobs lost, $19 trillion in home equity and and law savings. It's this idea that we are ultimately connected, that racist policymaking 
and racist business practices cannot be contained. And it's costing our country. Let's dig into that a little bit more. You, a couple of other nuggets from the book, um, when you're talking about the zero-sum hierarchy, the perception that white people cannot win if Black people and other people of color win, you say racial hierarchy offered white people a reprieve from the class hierarchy. And then you go on to explain, uh, in your words, the economic benefit of the racial bargain is shrinking for all but the richest. Your work with the the race class narrative project really, I think, demonstrates that logic is not always a selling point. So what do you do when logical arguments fail? And tell us a little bit about the race class narrative project as well. This need that I think progressives have to deal with the framework as it exists, right? You can't communicate successfully without recognizing where your audience is and what are the frameworks in your audience's mind? What are the deep stories that your audience is bringing to the conversation? And so often when progressives want to win over the majority of white people to the progressive cause, right, which has not happened since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, the majority of white people have voted against the party of civil rights, um, since it became the party of civil rights, right? Um, But in those appeals to white audiences, so often, you know, particularly white progressives say, well, let's let's not talk about race, right? Let's, Let's talk about the things that we all want. Let's talk about raising the minimum wage and taxing the wealthy and funding our schools and universal healthcare. And the problem is that ignores the fact that all of those issues are highly racialized, that race has become the central character in folks' minds about the story of the economy and government. And, you know, that is because of a deliberate strategy by the right wing to racialize the idea of government, to turn white people away from government, away from labor unions, away from collective solutions, and towards the market, right? And towards the market, which is dominated by white men, right? It's an identity play away from a multiracial coalition towards a, uh, you know, a white hierarchical status uh, promise. When I say that the benefits of the economic bargain are shrinking, it's because two generations now of that economic formula of, you know, tax cuts for the wealthy, deregulating everything, underfunding our schools and underfunding all that we have in common, failing to update our infrastructure, um, failing to, you know, rise to the moment of the country's biggest challenges has broken the country. So where do we go from here? Isn't that the question? (laughs) Um, You know, honestly, this journey that I took the right that some of us left me more hopeful than when I began it. In some ways, you know, after spending nearly 20 years trying to fix the minimum wage, trying to fix student debt, trying to fix affordable housing, trying to fix all, you know, healthcare, all of these individual issues. Once I found the thread of racism underneath all of these public problems, it was clear to me that if we could just pull that, progress on all of these other issues would be further within reach. And my point is that we had the formula for making sure that working people had a middle-class standard of living and could have that kind of economic security. And this country walked away from that formula when they had to share with people of color. Thank you so much, Heather. Thank you so much, Ryan. It's so wonderful to be with you in conversation. That was Heather McGee, author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Cost Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together.
The United States continues to hit grim milestones in the fight against COVID-19. Half a million dead and counting, over a year since it hit our shores. Some hope is on the horizon, though. President Joe Biden has announced that there will be enough vaccines for all adults by mid-May. My next guest has a story that is also both painful and hopeful. Next week marks the one-year anniversary of Marissa Torona's hospitalization with COVID-19. Torona has a long career in organizing and philanthropy, and I know her as a friend and former co-worker. Marissa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Fry. I'm so glad to be in conversation with you always, but especially today. When did you get sick? So it happened really early on as the pandemic just sort of took shape here in the United States. It was in early March and our office had closed because there was a colleague who had tested positive for COVID-19. But up until that time, I, as many other New Yorkers, you know, was taking the subway, was um, in public spaces. Uh, we had begun in our own family to begin to protect ourselves by cleaning diligently and pretty intensely our home whenever we came home, ourselves whenever we came home from work and from school. Even though we had taken all of those precautions, I got sick I just started coughing uncontrollably and I couldn't stop coughing. And then I began feeling very weak as if a very, I was experiencing a really intense flu. And then I had fevers that went as high as 104 and they weren't abating. So later in that week, I then reached out to um, practitioners about what to do. And at that point in time, the COVID um, testing in New York City, it wasn't widespread. And so it was, you couldn't get tested. Um, unless you had, I think, pretty serious symptoms at that point. Um, but when I had reached the doctors over, it might have been that, I think, Friday the 13th, quite honestly, they said they're going to open them up on Monday. And so I signed up for what might have been like one of the first three or four tests uh, for COVID-19 on that Monday. And then the next day, because my fever hadn't abated and I was still coughing quite a bit and was having more difficulty breathing, my primary care physician by telephone told me, you need to get to the emergency room. Because we knew each other before you got sick, I remember getting a text mm -hmm. saying that you were going into the emergency room and I was just so devastated by that. And then hearing that you had been intubated. Can you tell us what you remember about going in and essentially being told that you needed help breathing? I arrived at the emergency room um, on the 17th. And so you had all the... Um, the nurses, the technicians, the doctors who are on staff who are basically triaging a kind of growing crowd of people who were, at least to me, and I'm not a medical professional, clearly had been affected by COVID. And so it was at that point that I'd overheard one of the nurses say, watch her sat rates, I think is what she said, which is basically my oxygen saturation. And I guess at that point in time, it was much lower than what they would want to see in a healthy human being, Right. And so what happened was that I was basically in the ER for a couple of more hours waiting for a bed in an ICU in one of the NYU hospitals. The last time I had seen my family was after my husband had dropped me off at the ER and I'd said goodbye to my daughter Beatrice um, at home. And so about 
four or five hours into, I guess, being at um, the ERs when I finally found out that they had a bed that was available for me. And the moment that they transferred me into the bed, a team of healthcare professionals came in. Uh, there was a doctor, uh, a couple of nurses, and an administrator who asked me, and this is when I knew that it was what was happening, mm-hmm. asked me um, basically who had my proxy. Oh, um, and so I was like, okay, so that's my husband. And you asked the question about when I knew that, about being intubated. I actually have no recollection of it whatsoever. Yeah. From what I could piece together in conversations um, with Ephraim, my husband, it happened the following day on the 18th that I was intubated. So you go into, you know, I'm going to be dramatic here, but you go into the valley of death mm-hmm. and then you come out. What do you remember about coming out? The first thing that I remember when I woke up, I thought that Beatrice and Ephraim had died. So I thought I was all alone. It was actually my very first thought. Because when I was in a medically induced coma, which they had to put me into, right? Because when they intubated me, because they knew that I was going to have to be on the ventilator for a very long period of time, it ended up being 28 days, they had to perform a tracheostomy. So the intubation happened through my throat. So I was I was out for a really, really long time and I had like a very vivid sort of dreamscape. But part of that very vivid dreamscape was this firm belief that I had when I woke up that my family had died and I was the only one who had survived. Oh. And from what I understand, it took the hospital staff in a very generous, very caring way, about a week to convince me that my family was in fact alive and healthy. Um, So from what I've been told, apparently I was awakened either on Easter Sunday or the day after. And then I spoke to my family for the first time about a week after that. Uh, There was also uh, a Hamilton connection, I understand, (laughs) to your, your recovery. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, you know, I'd been under sedation for such a long period of time. And so you don't just wake up. I've learned this now, right? You just don't wake up. It's like a gradual reduction of the sedation. And I was insistent that Lin-Manuel Miranda was hanging out in my hospital room. As he should. As he should. And I told Farai every person who came into the room and to their credit, the, the nurses and the doctors were just so indulgent of my insistence that he was hanging out in my room. So that was entertaining, at least for me now that I think about it and when I tell the story to others. You posted some video of you being wheeled out of the hospital and all of the staff cheering. How many days was it before you left the hospital and what happened next? So I was in the intensive care unit at NYU for 50 days and the video that you're referring to when they when they wheeled me out, it was amazing because they line up um, on in the hallways as you're being uh, taken from your um, hospital bed out to an ambulance, which in my case was taking me to um, a rehabilitative hospital that I swear I spent another 11 days working to basically um, learn how to walk again and brush my teeth and put my clothes on um, and climb upstairs. Wow. Your sister was also ill at the same time, at least part of the same time. Is that right? That's right. It was, um, if you can imagine, it was a really, really difficult time for my entire family. And for my parents, there was a two-week period where both of their daughters were on life support. 
So my family, my sister, my parents, my nephew all live in um, Nevada. And the last time that we had all seen each other was we see each other every every Christmas and we were all together at Christmas time. But, you know, three months had passed since we had seen each other. And yet my sister and I, within two weeks, both were hospitalized and on ventilators uh, because of COVID. And did she recover? Yeah, she's doing really well. The last thing is a lot of people are just really getting tired of the COVID era. What would you say to people who are like, I'm just so done with this. I can't. I'm just going to go out. I'm going to not pay attention to science. I would say that we all have a deep responsibility and obligation to care, not just for ourselves, but for each other. That's the only pathway forward. We actually will never turn the corner on this pandemic unless we have a deep-seated, shared collective belief in our collective health and safety. You know, when I think about the, the hundreds of strangers I will never meet for I, who were so committed to my survival and recovery and still are to this day and do this for thousands of people, that's the same level of commitment I would hope that people would bring to what we're experiencing right now. There is no pathway through this as an individual. You have to do mm. it by centering the well-being of your entire community and other people for all of us to actually get through this and not just survive, but to thrive. So wear a mask, people. <laughs> like wear a mask. Yeah, amen to that. So Marissa, so grateful for your time and so grateful for your healing and just grateful for you. Thank you, Farai. I really appreciate being in conversation with you. Thank you for your leadership, my friend. That was Marissa Tarona, president of Grantmakers Concerned with Immigrants and Refugees. Each week, we invite you to tell us what's on your mind by calling the speak line. This week, we're asking if you had one hour to talk about one topic affecting your local community with the U.S. senator for your state, what would you talk about and why? To leave us your message, call 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006. Or go to ourbodypolitik.show and scroll down to find a Google form to respond in writing. This week, I'm proud to invite our newest contributor to Our Body Politic to help us dissect the news about security at the U.S. Capitol. Holly Drains is the CEO of security consulting firm Elite Strategy Global and a former Secret Service special agent who served during the Obama administration. Welcome, Holly. Thank you so much for having me. So, Holly, it's great having you on, and you are someone who's so well-equipped to lead us through what's going on at the Capitol um, and throughout Washington, D.C. So can you lead us through what we know about General Honoré's report, and he's the person, uh, General Russell Honoré, tasked with investigating what happened in the breach of the Capitol on January 6th. So he released some public-facing recommendations. What stood out to you? Some of the recommendations that the general mentioned that really caught my attention were, number one, establishing a quick response team. The general Mm -hmm. mentioned that there was not a quick reaction force in place. And with D.C. being a prime tourist attraction, it remains a major target for attacks. Number two, the general insisted that mobile fencing was a viable option to quickly implement secured fencing that is both easy to construct as well as take down 
especially in the event of an unanticipated threat. He talked about mounted law enforcement units, which was one of the more unique solutions. It's been integrated in other major cities and deemed effective in separating crowds and easing tensions. And the fourth recommendation that General Honoré made that really stood out to me was the suggestion for hiring more U.S. Capitol Police officers. Mm. Obviously, with what took place on January the 6th, These officers were, they were outnumbered. Even though they were committed to the mission, we all know that they were simply outnumbered. Out of the siege on January 6th, there also was a sort of public discussion of the vetting of the National Guard members. And there were just a tiny handful out of 23,000 who were removed. Tell us a little bit more about that vetting process, not necessarily how that one was conducted, but why would one vet people who already are in service? A couple of things about vetting and and vetting folks in service. So I am in a a former Secret Service status. So one thing Mm. I want to say is that, you know, as a former special agent, first and foremost, I continue to really honor the sensitivity of the information regarding internal operational procedures. However, what I can tell you is that the vetting process that goes on within that particular agency is both comprehensive and very consistent. Um, The Secret Service has a zero-fail mission. And so to that end, that that zero-fail mission, it is based upon careful analysis of threat levels and is always proactive. What I'll also say about vetting is it's also something that's not out of the ordinary. It's not so different from a private employer exercising their liberties with conducting other types of vetting, whether it's updated background checks, whether it's random you know, drug screenings or testings. As someone who left the Secret Service to care for your nephew after your sister passed away and who made a great sacrifice leaving this career that that you loved to found your own company and, and have another career that you love, how as an individual with a family are you thinking about the security of the Capitol and, and you know, the importance of it? My job is to do my best to not panic. Um, I, mm-hmm. I try to, to the best of my ability, teach my nephew the same principle. There are times that, that, that things are going to cause you to feel fear, to feel anxiety. That, that's human. That is understandable. Um, we're in the midst of a pandemic. <laughs> Great example. My job is to stay informed, to stay prepared, on a daily basis, regardless of whether there is something heightened going on in the world or not. Simple things like, I'm I'm going to probably go out later on this afternoon because the day is beautiful. Do I need to have both earbuds in my ears when I go for my walk as I like to listen to music? Or does it make better sense for me to have one side in and one side out so that I can hear what's going on around me? Can I let someone know where I'm going? Hey, I'm going to hang out for about two hours. I'm going to set in this direction. So that's what I teach my nephew. So this has lessons for us all. It does. It really does. Like I said, I I know that sometimes the focus is on what is happening right now. But I think the bigger takeaway is what, what can I be doing all the time? 
Holly, thank you so much. It was great talking to you, Farai. That was Holly Drains, retired Secret Service special agent and currently CEO of a security consulting firm. Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. Joining me to dissect the week in news are our body politic contributors, Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th, and Jess Morales-Riquetto, Civic Engagement Director at the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Welcome back, Jess. Hey! Aaron, another week in hot and heavy politics. Farai, but where are the ads in March? <laughs> we got to keep an eye out for them. Watch those odds. Exactly. So look, I mean, wow, it's been a year since the start of the pandemic. How has the pandemic changed how each of you see politics? Farai, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I won't spend too long on this because we're going to get into it. But this whole idea of what a government spends and what services it provides, it, it's completely changed because of the pandemic, because this whole idea that you can be a sort of self-sufficient island and that, you know, that government help is unwanted. I think a lot of people who believed that are really grappling with the reality of life, which is that we need each other to survive and that there's no reason for government not to play a role in that. You you have to be judicious. But, um, I, you know, I wish that there had been the kind of child tax credit that is coming online when I were of childbearing age. And I am i no longer am, and I'm just going to put that out there. So Jess, where are you a year later? You know, in some ways, I think I'm actually more optimistic, um, in part because I think that everybody in their house all this time has kind of opened folks' eyes to what's happening. You know, people are feeling the ways in which our government and our elected leaders do affect their lives. They can literally determine whether or not they stay inside their house. They can determine whether or not we get a vaccine. So I'm hopeful that as we, you know, um, begin to get everyone vaccinated, begin to reopen, people's awareness won't go away. And I hate to talk about silver linings in like a really terrible time. I don't think that makes sense. But I do think that once you're, you kind of like woke up, it's hard to go back to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Both good points. I'll tell you, I think for me, the importance of hearing from voters, hearing from the people that are directly impacted by the politics and policy that is being decided in Washington. I I think that this year reaffirmed that for me, Uh, just hearing from so many people who were directly affected by this pandemic, whether they ever got sick or not, um, just just felt like uh, my best and highest use as a political journalist. And it really um, just... I think it had a chance to reorient all of our our, um, focus on on who it is that is being impacted by the politics that we cover. So that's where I am a year later. Uh, But let's turn our attention back to Washington because so much is happening in Washington, D.C. So let's talk about this COVID-19 relief bill or the American Rescue Plan. Here's President Joe Biden on primetime TV this past Thursday. Look, we know what we need to do to beat this virus. Tell the truth. Follow the scientists and the science. Work together. Put trust and faith in our government to fulfill its most important function, which is protecting the American people. So, Jess, tell me about the parts of the relief bill itself that you think are important for working Americans. Yeah, 
Well, the biggest thing is this is some of the biggest anti-poverty legislation that we've had in decades. And I don't think you're going to hear about that (laughs) so much in the news because of all of the kind of like party um, polarity that has happened as a result of the vote. But um, as a result of this, there's projections by people like the Urban Institute that poverty will fall by 42% for Black people, mm-hmm. 39% for Latinx folks, and 34% for white folks just from the American Rescue Plan. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Farai, tell me about the significance of this politically for the Biden-Harris administration and for Democrats. You know, the Democratic Party is in a really, really interesting place. I was reading a bit about how during the Obama administration um, that the administration didn't actually get much credit for saving the economy. So there is still some concern, I think, about, you know, you know, from some people in the Democratic Party that right now the bill is really popular, but will it actually continue to produce political gains? But that said, it's actually a, a moment of unity for the various wings of the party. You know, you have Manchin all the way on one side, you have Sanders and the squad, and you have everybody else. And everybody was like, let's pull together and get this across the finish line. So I think one of the most notable things to me is that that the Biden-Harris administration in working with um, the Democratic leaders on Capitol Hill has really achieved some party unity. And I'm also watching something else which seems unrelated on the surface, but which I think is also a a bellwether about the party, which is that um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, uh, representative from New York, of course, and and a lead member of the squad, had been working to um, make it easier to... Uh, to not be penalized for primarying a Democrat. And and she helped achieve uh, a change in something called the DCCC blacklist, you know, uh, about consultants working with challengers um, and and whether or not uh, they would get Democratic Party money. So I think that there's, interestingly, a sort of flourishing within the party of saying we can be many things and we can pull it together and get important legislation across the finish line. Yeah. Let's continue with the Biden-Harris administration. The president signed an executive order to establish a White House Gender Policy Council. Uh, Here's Vice President Kamala Harris at an event celebrating two women who were nominated to be four-star generals in the military. Let's listen to a clip. Recruiting more women to our military, adjusting policies to retain more women, enforcing policies to protect women and ensure they are heard, and advancing more women on fair and equal footing will, without any question, make our nation safer. And that's the work ahead. So Jess, what does that mean and how does it feel to know that these priorities are back in focus at the White House? Well, it's a really big deal. Uh, The Obama administration had what was called like the White House Office of Women and Girls. And this is a little bit of a, a remix on that Yeah. Yeah. Really big, you know, uh, change that they made. Um, And I think actually it's really important that this is a gender policy council. I think it's a real signal of what has changed from an Obama-Biden administration to a Biden-Harris administration. This isn't just about women and girls. It's about gender more broadly. Um, And 
which which is so 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 important and much more inclusive uh, you know which is a testament i think to the organizing and and narrative change and all of that we you know we begin to learn about how gender plays out in our government and in our society the other thing that i think is really important about this is there's some folks in it who you know i would say like these are people with teeth um at the very head even as you know, sort of like co-chairs, just somewhat ceremonial role. Um, Jen Klein and Julissa Reynoso, so um, a white woman and a uh, Afro-Latina woman, who are both sort of big policy heavy hitters. Uh, Julissa is, of course, the um, vice president, chief of staff. So this is this is like a, a big important. Um, roll out and, and the White House is doing a lot of signals to tell you, like, this is a really big, important deal. Yeah. And, and your point about kind of the evolution of this office, right, uh, from the Obama era to, to now, uh, you know, with Biden kind of reestablishing this office with that focus on, you know, uplifting the rights of women, really addressing gender-based discrimination and violence, right? Um, it's something that we also know um, is, is being tackled in the military. That was one of the early uh, priorities that was set uh, over in the Defense Department. And so, you know, just the, the idea that they're going to look at a range of issues from from gender bias and discrimination to economic security and opportunity. You know, I think I would add to that, uh, as as Vice President Harris noted, that, you know, they're an example for, for grown women who may be making their way up the ranks in the military. And so, uh, you know, continuing to kind of center and normalize women's leadership at the highest levels, uh, I think does a lot for, you know, our imagination as a democracy and a society. So let's go back to my home state of Georgia. Uh, The state Senate has passed a bill this week to roll back no-excuse absentee voting. Jess, what can be done to limit these efforts to suppress the votes? Well, you know, we are seeing that Democrats in Congress are making a big play around H.R. 1, um, which is about democracy reform, um, voting rights protection. And then we're seeing that in the states, Republicans are really uh, taking it to the state legislators. Uh, Georgia is a great place for this. And actually, um, from experience, I can tell you that many of, uh, you know, the kind of a wave of anti-whatever legislation that Republicans are moving really does start in Georgia. Um, So this is really scary, and we should be fighting with all of our might. We need to nationalize this issue. We need to make sure people understand um, that this is the first of many states that Republicans will try to pass this in. And since Democrats got completely shellacked on state legislators in 2020, um, that should really scare us. Really, really scary. So this is something that, um, you know, you, you're seeing Stacey Abrams, of course, talk about this. Um, but, you know, I think it would be really important, actually, for Democrats in Congress to also talk about this and really make sure that um, there's a big push to the Georgia legislature to not just stop this, but make clear who is rolling back voting rights in this country. Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly an old fight happening in a new day, especially in places like Georgia. I I am old enough to uh, remember when I was covering these very issues uh, in the Georgia legislature when you know they were kind of pioneering voter ID laws. Uh, you know, more than uh, more than a decade ago. So you saw President Biden on the anniversary of Bloody Sunday issuing executive order around voting uh, to try to counteract some of the activity that we see happening uh, in state legislatures even as we speak. Farai, I want to turn to you for your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is just, you know, naked gloves off voter suppression without even the fig leaf of like, this is good for democracy. It's it's so transparent, but it's also very much a real effort. And, and you can break down the numbers showing that the reason that there's a carve out for people who are 65 
uh, years old or older for this uh, absentee voting to be continued um, is because the majority of people who vote in that demographic absentee are white. I mean, it's just, it's disheartening that it's so transparent, but it also makes the stakes clear. And so are some other things. Like there's literally a group called Stop Stacy um, to try to block Stacey Abrams from running for governor in 2022 or to at least undermine that. And they they launched in February and called themselves uh, uh, a robust state and national fundraising operation of engaged conservatives who are committed to protecting our future from Stacey Abrams, her left-wing backers, and their radical un-American agenda. I mean, I know I shouldn't laugh, and the reason I'm laughing is just because, it, like, the dog whistle is gone. That's what died in 2020, the dog whistle. The dog whistle died. <laughs> it's just like it's all out in the open, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Farai, you're exactly right to talk about who benefits from vote by mail, because for years it has been Republicans and white voters. And that shifted in 2020 in a pandemic when you had organizers encouraging uh, black and brown voters, the same folks who were being disproportionately uh, killed, you know, in this pandemic to to uh, exercise uh, a safer option potentially for them, uh, which was to cast a ballot uh, absentee. And we know that the Black share uh, of, of vote-by-mail surged from 23% to 31%, and that nearly 30% of Black voters cast their ballot by mail in 2020, uh, but just 24% of white voters did so. And now you have former President Donald Trump even requesting a mail-in ballot. But listen, Fry, you brought up talking about the quiet part out loud. So I want to I want to look at this moment on British TV network Sky News with GOP strategist Matt Gorman and his Freudian slip regarding voting rights. Let's listen. Look, I think the biggest balance is how we as a party, certainly we have appealed and we should continue to appeal to the, you know, the white suburban, or excuse me, the, the working class blue collar workers, but also how do we appeal to those suburban voters? Excuse me, uh, the mm-hmm. working class. Jess, let me get your thoughts on this. Is, is this a winning strategy? Well, I mean, I think that so far it has been um, a winning strategy for Republicans. And I think that's actually really important. You know, I was reflecting as you all were talking about the voting rights piece, like all of this is part of a very seamless strategy of racism. It just is. That's like the main message that they're using. It's the um, main constituency of people that they're trying to engage, uh, which is l- white people and not just white people, but like white supremacist people or people who are interested in maintaining the status quo of white supremacy. And I say that because there, you're right about the, there's not a dog whistle, but it's also that the more they talk about that, the more they sort of say these, you know, little blue collar workers, working class, suburban voters, whatever, all those are synonyms for white, just different levels of whiteness, um, the more that they animate their base. So there's a reason that they've sort of just said it out loud because they're actually finding that that is motivating people. That is a strategy of the Republican Party. And it's frankly been the strategy of the Republican Party for 50 or 60 years at this point. Right. I, I was just I was just going to say, Jess, this is this is something that preceded uh, the former president and certainly is is still present in in our politics. And uh, it is a strategy that has worked, that has been a winning strategy uh, for Republicans. But but whether or not it will continue to be so as as they play a, a game of subtraction and not addition uh, at the ballot box uh, is is an open question. So uh, we learned this week that donations to the GOP have actually increased since the January 6th insurrection. Uh, And a lot of those are grassroots and individual donations. 
Uh, so uh, does this mean that corporations are losing their stronghold in our democracy? And, and are more Americans willing to fill in the gap out of pocket? Farai, help us understand the implications of this. Well, you know, it's uh, since Citizens United, which was the ruling that basically, you know, opened the floodgates to um, increased money and less accountability in politics, there has been um, a sort of virtue signaling around getting small donors versus big donors. But money, you know, and, and, I, and I personally think Citizens United is a disaster. I'm just going to say that. However, money doesn't always follow the good. It follows whatever people want it to follow. And I think that in, in, a, in a situation like this, the small donations may actually offset what is a movement to get corporate responsibility for donations. But if the move to call for social, corporate social responsibility around this then results in a fundraising campaign that gets people more money, you know, it doesn't mean that, it, you know, it didn't work, but it just shows that money flows in strange ways in a culture war environment and people can actually weaponize. If they lose a corporate donor, they may actually be able to make more money from small donors. So, so I guess... Uh, it just reaffirms that m- money itself is amoral. It's not immoral. It's not moral. It's just amoral. Money does what people ask it to do. And in this case, the individual donations may actually defray any cost of this move for corporate social responsibility around donations to people who called for the active undermining of American democracy. Yeah. Yes, yeah, such a good point about, uh, you know, voters really speaking with their dollars uh, in terms of corporations and candidates uh, in, in this culture war political climate. Uh, and, and I think that that's something that, that we are seeing uh, really on, on both sides and, and really uh, so many Americans rethinking, you know, what it means to be a donor. Like that's not some kind of high-minded, far-off uh, thing. The idea that, that somebody who is giving, you know, not necessarily the, tens of thousands of dollars, but even in small increments that, that, that enough of those people coming together can really, uh, you know, make a difference and have an impact. Well, time flies when we're sipping the tea, ladies. Uh, it was nice talking with you again, Farai. Thank you so much, Erin. Love this conversation. And I hate to go, but we have to leave it there for now, Jess. See you next week. So that was Jess morales Riquetto of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and Aaron Haynes of the 19th. Thank you so much for joining us on Our Body Politic. We are on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Jen Chien is executive editor. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by associate sound designer Kojin Tashiro. Our producer is Priscilla Alabi. Julie Zan is our talent consultant. Michelle Baker and Emily Daly are assistant producers. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt, Michael Castaneda, and Sarah McClure. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, from the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, from Be Me Community, a network designed to build caring and prosperous communities inspired by Black people, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.